Thank you, worship team. Good morning, High Point. My name is Femi, and I am one of the elders here, and I'll be reading the scripture for this morning. Scripture for today is found in Nehemiah chapter 5. We'll be reading verses 1 through 13. Uh, This can be found on page 685 in your pew Bible. Nehemiah chapter 5, starting from verse 1. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and our daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood, As our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you were charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you are charging them, 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Thanks, Tommy. Hey, everyone. I'm going to dive right in here because went a long last hour. Um, on um, this day before we celebrate Martin Luther King Day, um, a lot of churches endeavor to celebrate what is sometimes called Sanctity of Life Sunday. I want to just be clear on what the definition of sanctity is for Christians because that word can be thrown around a lot of different ways. It means the, proper, the, the property of deserving dignity and respect through one's relationship to God. So it is deserving dignity and respect through one's relationship to God. You might be like, well, why don't you just say image of God? And be, It's because there are some things that, are, that have sanctity that aren't human beings. There are some institutions that deserve sanctity, like marriage, for example, and the local church, and so on. And there are also things that are not institutions, like, for example, the, the earth, like the environment. It's something that God has created for us to take dominion over, but it didn't mean, he didn't mean trash the place. And it, there's a certain kind of dignity that, like, almost everything that God creates ought to have on a very general level. And so having a right understanding of what dignity things should have and participating in 
interacting with them in relationship to that dignity, what we call justice, is kind of fundamental to what it means to be a Christian in the natural world. Does that make sense? Okay, so in, um, in a lot of Christian churches, especially ones that believe that the Bible is the Word of God written, um, there was a movement from recognizing Martin Luther King um, Day on a Monday and making the Sunday before that sanctity of life Sunday specifically in relationship to what a lot of people believe is the greatest civil rights issue in American culture, at least since 1973, which is abortion. And um, within the Christian church that I think the scriptures are very direct about this, about the um, image-bearing human life, and that um, there are a number of scriptures that indicate that human life in the womb is, still has the same divine protection, and that abortion is a immense and maybe is the greatest civil rights issue, and the greatest indignity, and the greatest issue with human sanctity in the entire world. It's very likely it is in the United States. Um, however, one of the things that— um, Martin Luther King said in a number of his lectures, one of the reasons, for example, in 19, I, was, I think it was in 67, he came out against the Vietnam War, whether or not that was the right choice. The reason he said he needed to come out against the Vietnam War was because he believed in the interrelationship of justice. And he said, look, if I believe in racial justice, but if I believe that the Vietnam War is an unjust war, and I don't say anything about that, but I only talk about racial justice, he's like, don't you see how that's a problem? And so he believed that he had to talk about more than just that. Now, um, one of the reasons why I think that's important is, is that as Christians, there's a few things that we really need to believe for a number of reasons that I'll go into shortly. But there's two things I think we need to believe about justice, is that it's very deeply interwoven with its, within itself, and it's also a very wide idea, because it refers to all sanctity. Everything God has given dignity to, justice therefore then relates to. So for example, if you, if you take the, the example of abortion, for example, um, Christians should hold, biblically speaking, that abortion is an inherent and categorical moral wrong because it extinguishes an image-bearing human being. But if we behave as though abortion is an injustice that stands alone by itself, unrelated to the other things it's deeply interwoven with, then we can get really self-righteous about it, especially if we haven't had one. And we can, we can also recognize that we have, we can say that we have no responsibility in relationship to it and its practice. But if you look at broader human culture and society, there are lots of things that, that create pregnancies that women don't want, and they feel like, or they choose to get an abortion. And some things can be like, you can do them very flippantly and not even think of them as hor horrible justice. For example, if you seek to philosophically, persuasively justify abortion, that it's just or good, then that's a horrible injustice. Because giving the conscience a reason to do what it feels like instead of what's right, directly leads to people making that kind of decision. Also, stupid parenting models. They f it feeds into abortion. Like, if you're just like, oh, a parenting model, I'm just going to pick this child-centered one, and yeah, it makes me crazy and stressed out. Listen, all the young people see how much we hate being parents when we use really idiotic parenting models, and we treat children like they're idols, and they're, they have to be these perfect little creatures, and so we can only have a couple of them, because otherwise we'll, like, go psychologically insane, and, like, we're gonna, like, do all this stuff, and, like, we let them talk back to us, and we have a culture of disrespect in our house, and we let that happen because we don't want to hurt their psychologies, and all that kind of stuff. Nobody wants to have a family. Nobody wants to get married. Nobody certainly wants to have children. Right? Like, if you foster a culture of disrespect in your house with your kids, or if you're a kid— who is disrespectful towards your parents? Right? You're making your future self believe you don't want to have children and receive human beings from God and engage in the fertility mandate and raise up godly offspring that he wants to release in the dominion taking of the world. You're doing that yourself. 
and your peers. And it all feeds into a rejection of the fertility mandate, which requires the marriage mandate, which requires the responsibility and stability of those marriages, which requires a culture that supports it, which requires, which requires, which requires. And so you like, we can be like, well, I didn't have an abortion, so I don't have anything to do with this. Well, we got a lot, I've got a lot to do with it. Because I've probably done eight or 12 of these things. And what we, what we need to realize is in the depth of injustice, injustice is interrelated with all these things that make it thinkable and make it possible and make it lightly, likely and motivate it and incentivize it and disincentivize stopping it. And, and one of the reasons this is important is, God help me, my heart breaks every time a non-white person comes to High Point and says to me, Nick, it was such a breath, breath of fresh air to come to High Point to see how multi-ethnic a church it is. And I think, did you come to High Point? Are you— and, and you know what they say to me every time? Every time. They say, because I say that, are you sure about High Point? And they go, well, compared to the other churches I've gone to in Dane County, it is. And I think, <gasps> and you know what part of the reason for that is? If I sat down, for example, with my friend Marcus Allen, who pastors a predominantly African-American church, I said, listen, Sanctity of Life Sunday, aren't you going to talk about abortion? You know what he's probably going to tell me? He's probably going to say, not really. Right? Why? Because one of the issues between black and white Christians is, is that white Christians love to talk about how bad this is and that we need to stop that and tell people not to do it. A lot of African-Americans are like, yeah, there's a lot of upstream stuff of that that is like wrecking us. And like, it's, it's really hard to get people not to do that if like, like we don't really support single motherhood well, or if we like demonize certain things, or if we have really bad welfare codes that make it bad for men to be, or if we like unnecessarily incarcerate people. Like there's a, there's a lot of stuff that's feeding into that in our community. If we just come down hard on people and be like, you can't have abortions. Like, I, like most of the African-American pastors, pastors I know, they believe abortion is wrong. It's really hard to say it publicly, definitively, like because of how it's heard, because of how white Christians and black Christians tend to talk about this stuff. And so we have to recognize the depth of the interwovenness of injustice. Otherwise, even though we believe in these injustices together, we talk past each other in the discussions, and then we don't actually have communion, and we don't actually like work with each other and produce good like actions of what we can do and figure out what's upstream from what and how we can be helpful towards each other. And it divides the body of Christ even though we believe the same thing. Remember, listen, if you're an Orthodox Christian believer, the devil's plan to divide you from other believers is to divide you from people who believe the same thing as you, which is all in changing the emphases. Get this person to emphasize that and that person to emphasize that, then they won't even talk to each other. We're actually kind of easy to mess up, okay? The second thing about injustice is you've got to believe how wide it is. If you get too focused on one thing and you're like, this is the thing, we got to stop this injustice, you may be 100% right. But there's all kinds of other people that because of their experiences and how they're feeling and what's been happening in their life, they get really exercised about something else. And if you deny that thing or you're like, that doesn't matter at all, it's just this other thing over there, like you, you don't actually come together in any kind of brotherhood or any kind of um, solidarity to actually speak with one voice or to, to have a single woven complete fabric of sanctity and therefore justice. So for example, like, there's a lot of people for whom, like, listen, racial unity is the big issue because it's upstream of so much, and like, we've really got to focus, and if we really want to focus on justice, we've got to bring the whole human family together, at least in the church, so that we can, like, interact and, like, figure out what other people are feeling and doing what's happening, understand some of our cultural differences, figure out how to speak the same language with each other, and then maybe we can help 
in some of the ways people are attacking each other, talking past each other, not listening to each other. Right? And maybe we can figure out how to sacrificially help each other. But for other people, like there's a lot of like younger white people for whom like it's all about like climate change and environmental catastrophe and like, and listen, you, you, listen, you don't have to believe the earth is going to end in 12 years to agree that like the human race doesn't have a fantastic track record of conserving positively the environment in which we live. Because that's just so hard. Especially in Wisconsin. The paper mills and the rivers and stuff. I mean, the walleye are just starting to come back in some of these rivers. Like, we, I mean, we wrecked this place. And that's, that's true, like, in a lot of ways. And yes, technology and the free market and innovation historically is the best. Blah, 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 blah. That's all true. But listen, we as Christians can say, without necessarily picking a particular public policy, yes, how we treat the environment is an issue of sanctity and justice because God's creation itself has a certain amount of sanctity. And there are people pollutionally downstream from us. And there are people who, God willing, are going to be born in the future. And their lives matter, and the kind of air they breathe matters, right? And that matters, and it doesn't have to be—but listen, if you're a Christian, like, if people don't agree with your thing on this, they just, like, they don't get it, and they don't love Jesus, like— Okay, but listen. That's humility and prudence. Humility and prudence, okay? And then for some people, like, our world— is really increasing in totalitarian persecution. The governments of the world, it does not look like they're getting better right now. And the terrifying nature of modern technology and the ability to surveil people and to really destroy everybody knowing exactly what every single person does in every place is terrifying. If you've not read some of the news reports of some of the Uyghurs who have gotten out of China, and like the lady that, that, that um, testified before the Senate committee, she was, she was in one cell with 60 women for three months. 60 women, nine of them died in the three months that she was with them. They were, she talked about wearing an electric shock helmet that shocked them so much that they fell out of consciousness and would foam at the mouth. They were fed drugs. They had no idea what they were, leading to some women becoming infertile, other women bleeding. One woman said that she, when she was taken back into the country, they took her triplets from her. She got two of them back because one of them died and all of them had been operated on. Okay, listen, people say never again about Nazi concentration camps, but these are Russian gulags where 20 to 40 million people died, not 12. And we say never again about Nazism. What about the hammer and sickle? Like, when are we going to grow up and realize that old Soviet domination now exists in China and they have technologies that the Soviets never dreamed of? And they've already interned something like two million people, according to our own State Department. They don't, they don't matter because they're Turkish Muslims? Right? The one I'm going to talk about this morning, though, is economic vulnerability, because it's in Nehemiah. We're preaching through Nehemiah. That's what I'm going to focus on, okay? All right. We, we're going to come back to this one in the fall, because the other Sunday where we focus on a theme like this is the persecuted church. So we will come back to that. So economic vulnerability. So here's, here's what comes up in Nehemiah 5. I can't say everything there is to, to say about poverty or economic vulnerability. So I'm going to focus on what comes up in Nehemiah 5, which is this. God is creating a spiritual renewal. It's an amazing spiritual renewal. He's doing amazing spiritual things and reconstituting his people and rebuilding Jerusalem and giving people back their land. And then this happens. And what it shows us is this. That the, the neglect of economic injustice can miscarry 
a spiritual renewal. The neglect of economic injustice can miscarry a spiritual renewal. Now, I know there's some women in this room who are like, Nick, did you have to use the word miscarry because you've had a miscarriage and you know how painful it is and you're like, Nick, you could have used something else and, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I took it out and put it back in and took it out and put it back in. The reason I left it in is because I feel like it's so descriptive of exactly what it does. That God says to bring about new life, something so excited about, something so great, something that you, you're waiting to come fully to pass, and then something that you, you didn't really pay attention to, you didn't, didn't know it was there, you, you, you couldn't really prevent it, you didn't know how to prevent it, it wasn't on your mind, just destroys this new life that is coming about, and it is incredibly tragic, and sometimes you don't even know at the end what it was about. But here, what we find out is that God is creating this great move of God, this great spiritual revival, and there is a un unpaid attention to economic injustice brewing, and it's going to destroy everything spiritually that's happening. Now, there's, there's this very specific reason why I'm, I'm talking about this, and that's because um, in the last 10 years or so, you might say 12 years or so, of High Point Church, this church has grown a lot. And I don't just mean in terms of numbers and finances. I mean in terms of like, people coming to faith and being baptized and learning to follow Jesus and growing in godliness and dealing with difficult marriages and forgiving parents and like becoming productive responsibility taking men and women and like really, really great things. And, and I would say it's a small movement, but it's this really cool movement that God is doing that is spiritually encouraging. And I never thought I'd be part of something like this. I thought it would be slower. And yet— one of the things that I'm careful about is like, what if we neglect will find a way to destroy the vitality of what we're trying to do? Will really hurt us. Will we'll find a way to miscarry the good thing that God is creating. And I think that in Nehemiah 5, this is one of the things that God confronts us with, that neglected economic injustice is one of those things. Right? And I also think that it's integral and extremely important in being a church for all people. Being a church for African Americans. Being a church for Latino immigrants and Latino immigrant families. Right? Being a church for um, Bhutanese refugees. Being a church, God willing, for Uyghur refugees as soon as possible. Being a church for all people requires understanding the, the natural and physical hardships people have gone through, oftentimes directly in relationship to their economic vulnerability, okay? So let's look at a couple things. Now, some of you might be thinking, Nick, this sounds like one of those social justice sermons where people put the Bible aside and they just want to talk about politics. And I've, I have a feeling that the next couple of slides are like, what we should do with our next president or something. And, and I, I get that. Okay, like I get that. Um, but, man, I've been reading the Bible for a while. And in the Bible itself, there's a lot of stuff. Like, it's, it's, it astounds me how Republicans can read the Bible so Republicanly, and Democrats can read the Bible so Democratly. It's like, you know, every verse that supports your little, little political blah, blah, blahs, and there's like a bazillion verses that, like, should chasten it, and you don't even know they're there. You know what I mean? And, like, for, for a lot of evangelicals, they just tend to be more culturally conservative, and, you know, people should work hard and, like, take care of them. Like, it, like I get that. But— when you look at the Bible, there's so many parallels in the Bible between financial wealth and spiritual wealth, and financial poverty and spiritual poverty. Let me give you a few examples. You may want to study some of these because I won't go over all of them. But like literally in the, in the original promise to Israel, 
physical prosperity and spiritual prosperity are literally one thing. Like, blessing is a physical blessing. Like, God, in fact, literally says in the Bible, if you do everything I tell you to do, there won't be any poor people. Full stop, right? And then, like, four verses later, he's like, now, this is what you should do with poor people. Because God knew, like, the first day he gave them the law, they weren't going to do it, right? So, but he said, like, if you would do it, if all people would live just, if the poor would live justly, and the rich would live justly, and the middle class, and everybody lived justly, everybody did what they could do, there wouldn't be any degrading poverty among you. Those who had little wouldn't have too little. It goes back to the collecting manna in the desert, right? When they all went out to collect manna, it didn't say they all had exactly the same. What it said is, those who had little didn't have too little, and those who had much didn't have too much. And those who tried to take too much, God turned it all to worms. Right? And that's meant to be something of a principle we carry forward in the people of God, right? And so that's literally there. But if you look at some of these other ones, for example, in Acts 2 through 6, the church spontaneously, not because the government forces them, but chooses to sell their belongings to give to those who have physical need. It's like, it's just like an intuitive thing when they become believers, responding to the teaching of Jesus and the actions of Jesus that coming out of spiritual poverty and spiritual wealth in salvation means becoming a family where we care about the destitution and people who are profoundly without physically among us, right? In a number of these, this is strong, but Philemon is one of my favorites. In the book of Philemon, so Philemon is a slave owner, Christian, who lives in Colossae. And he had this slave named Onesimus who, like, ran away. So it's decently possible that Philemon wasn't the this, this nicest slave owner ever in the history of the world. But he was a believer. And so Onesimus went and found Paul. Onesimus becomes a Christian. And then Paul tells Onesimus, you need to go back to Philemon. Now, under Greco-Roman law, Philemon can kill him because you're allowed to do that to run away slaves. And so Paul writes a letter and puts it in Onesimus' hand, a one-page letter. And he's like, you take that with him, and you give that to Philemon when you get there. And then he's probably sent it with the letter to the Colossians so that they would all hear it too, so it would be like a community thing, and Philemon couldn't really do whatever he wanted. So, in, so it, but this is what Paul says in verses 17 to 20. He says this. So this is Paul writing to Philemon about this slave Onesimus. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he's done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. You could tell he's Jewish, right? I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Do you see the argument he's making? He's saying to—now, he's not Onesimus—he's—Paul isn't Philemon's father, and he's not his actual business partner, and he didn't rescue him from a dungeon. When he says, you owe me your very life, what he means is, you've become a child of God. You've been saved from sin, death, and hell. You've been redeemed through the gospel. You've received the gift of the Holy Spirit. You are an heir of heaven. You are—you are a co-heir with Christ. And I brought that to you. I came to Turkey. I didn't have to come to Turkey. I went to Turkey, and I preached that in your little town in the middle of nowhere, and you believed. And so on an on a earthly level, you owe me your very eternity. Now, listen, if when Onesimus left, he stole 250 bucks, I'll pay that 250 bucks if you really need it. But you do owe me your very self. You see, that, that works because what, he, what Paul is saying is, he's saying, 
when you consider what you do with your money and what you've been cheated out of and what you are owed and what you should give and how generous you should be with your money and with the slave and with these economic arrangements, you think about the economic arrangements with Jesus first. That you were poor and you were a slave and you had nothing. And Jesus, who was rich for your sake, I'm quoting 2 Corinthians 8 now, became poor so that by his poverty you could become rich. And now you think about how you should treat this guy. You see the relationship there? It's completely interwoven. So from God's perspective, that inner relationship matters, but also from the poor's perspective, that matters. Because you ain't never going to convince the poor that if you don't care about them financially and personally and, and like functionally, that you think they're really made in the image of God. That you really worship God and not money. <laughs> You're we can't ever convince them of that. It says in the Bible, those who are unkind or dismissive of the poor mock their maker. Why? Because the, in some ways the poor are the only object of your truly disinterested interest in God. Because everybody else can do something for you. And so when you help everybody else, you're hoping in some way to have some kind of interaction, or some kind of relationship, or to profit from it in some way, or at least you might. The people who can't do anything for you, or at least you, who you in your flesh believe can't do anything for you, right? But, but you believe they bear God's image. How you treat them demonstrates in practicality how you feel about God. And that's one of the reasons why the Bible can connect how we treat the poor to judgment. Because how are we judged? We're judged by faith, but our faith is demonstrated by our works. Well, what's one of the purest works that demonstrates how you really feel about God? Well, the Proverbs say how you treat the poor. Right? So, if that's true, we need to remember that therefore it would then be reasonable to understand why in Nehemiah 5, neglect of injustices can miscarry a spiritual restoration. Right? Now, let's look at a couple things. There's two, there's two problems that come up in this passage that are pretty straightforward, that when economic injustice is neglected, one, it exasperates the vulnerable. And secondly, it divides the brotherhood of people, class against class, so to speak, right? So the first is that it exasperates the vulnerable. You could, you could hear the poor in this passage saying something like this. Listen, I can take sufferings for the fight of life. What I can't take is it coming from the very people that are supposed to be in this with me. Right? These people, these poor people, they didn't quit when Nehemiah said, you're going to have to abandon your families during a famine and come to Jerusalem and build a wall. They didn't complain. They said, if that's what needs to be done, that's what we'll do. And they didn't, they didn't complain when they had to stand guard. They didn't complain when they were going to get their throats slit by the people who were fighting against them in chapters 3 and 4 so that they had to stay up all night guarding and then work all day the next day laying stones. They didn't complain. They didn't argue, and their wives didn't come to work with them and complain. Like when it says that the men and their wives came and complained, that's significant. Because usually the wives stayed out of this stuff, right? And here—but here's what they can't take. Here's what they can't take. The people who lived in the city— and who are wealthy, that they were slaving and building the wall for— being the very people who are finding a way to crush them economically underfoot with interest they couldn't pay and the loan program that they were leading. That's what they couldn't take. Just couldn't take it. 
It, it, it took a difficult life and it made it impossible, right? Remember it says in, in um, Colossians about parenting, it's like, it says, fathers, don't exasperate your children. Yeah, you got to discipline them. Yeah, you got to push them. Yeah, life is hard. Yeah, they got to figure out how to be human. But listen, there's, there is a level of pushing that takes people from motivating them to like just making them despondent. And they're like, screw this. I'm going to do, I'm not doing this. I'm not, I'll do whatever, right? There's a, there's a level. And he's like, you, you can't meet, you can't cross that as a father. And you can't do that to people economically. Does that make sense? All right, the second, okay. So he's like, their wives said, look, in order for us to eat and stay alive. So there's, there's some, one group of people who literally didn't have any food left. There's stores of food in Jerusalem because the taxes were paid to these rich people, usually in product. So they literally have grain stores, and these people know it, and they're agrarian families. They tend to have a lot of kids, right? And they're like, look, we're all going to starve unless we get grain. What's the subtext there? Unless we get grain, they don't have any money. Or they would have already bought it. Unless we get grain, we're going to starve. You know what the subtext is? Is starting a riot and shedding blood the only way we can get justice? Um, I try in January and February to read at least a couple hundred pages of civil rights literature. And um, in, so I read a bunch of interviews by Martin Luther King this last year. And in a number of places he gets asked, usually by white interviewers, what about the riots? All these riots that are happening. Isn't it your fault? Isn't it, doesn't it show that civil rights and nonviolence isn't going to work? And doesn't it show— And King is always the same. He always answers the same. He goes, I'm always against rioting. I'm always against violence. Violence is always bad for a number of reasons. But here's what you'll notice. When we go into a place and do a protest, and we give people hope that through the protest something could change, black crime goes almost to zero in every single town we've ever demonstrated in, which was true. And then he said, in other places— when you get your foot strong enough on the neck of somebody and they just don't have anything else they can do, they've got nothing to lose and they've got nothing else to try, what do you think is going to come out of the human spirit that knows that they shouldn't be treated this way and that this is awful and we're as good as their children, our children are as good as their children? What do you think is going to happen? They're going to ask this question. Is rioting and shedding blood the only way to get justice? Is that the only way? Right? And then these other groups, both of these people are mortgaging their fields, right? Which means this. The, the people who were, who were lending the money were lending it to them at interest, and they were requiring them to give over control of their fields while they were in debt. Do you see how that works? So the way they produce wealth is literally with their fields. Now they've got to pay off a debt that is now growing because of interest— and now the only way they have to make money is to then work for the guy on their fields that used to be their fields. So now I own that guy's field. Now he's working for me. I pay him a wage that's going to be, of course, less than an owner would make. But as an owner, he couldn't pay it. And now I'm charging interest. So what do I have? I have an eternal slavery-based feedback loop without making him an official slave. That's what I've got. He can never pay his way out of it. He can never get his land back. Eventually, I will get his land— and he still has to work for me, and I still don't have to farm. That's called good business. Until God kills you. Yeah, it's good business until God kills you. Right? And they're like, what's the deal? And see the exasperation? And you see, these people aren't coming to your worship service, right? Like, these, these folks are not like, Jesus, it's fantastic. Like, they're not—they're wondering what's going to— They're like, Nehemiah, you're leading a great spiritual revival. What about this? What about this? 
Because exasperation is not a place where people can go through the constructive work of repentance and faith and personal inventory and, right? The second is, is that it divides the brotherhood, right? Like, you can almost see the poor people saying this. Look, you can have more than me. But when it means I'm a slave, it means we're not brothers. You see, when they come to me and they, they, they say what's been happening to them, and they say this. They say, listen, we're men just like them. And our kids are just as good as their kids. How come I have to sell my daughter into an enslavement marriage when these guys are making percentages off of us in the middle of a famine while we're building the wall that's keeping them safe? It's literally the wall that protects the grain they took from us. Like, how can you do that to us? We're supposed to be your brothers. Right? And what Nehemiah also says is what they were doing was when that person defaulted, they were selling them into slavery outside of the Jewish people to the Gentile people around them. What Nehemiah had been doing since he got there was raising money to buy Jewish people in slavery among the Gentiles so they could be back in the Jewish people. So what he was doing, what these guys were doing was they were skimming money. They were setting up an economic system to skim money out of like the church registry. Right? So like, they would cheat these people. They'd suck all this money out of the system. They'd get sold into slavery. Then Nehemiah would raise all this money to buy them out of slavery. So Nehemiah was subsidizing their injustice without wanting to do it. He's like, are you kidding me? But that, that's what happens until something happens. And so the unity that's necessary to rebuild the people of God, the unity that's necessary to have faith together, the unity that's necessary to be the body of Christ— bound together in all the sinews of the body, co-heirs with Christ, one people, one baptism, one faith. It's impossible. Because if you'll make a slave out of me, we're not brothers. Because you wouldn't do that to your brother. Right? All right. So, where are we going from here? These sorts of things have to be faced, not spiritualized. Right? Now, you might say, well, well, Nick, isn't it true, though, that, like, poor people can have hope in the wealth, the spiritual wealth of knowing Christ, even if they're in extremely poor conditions? And the answer is absolutely. Absolutely. The gospel is true no matter what economic condition people are in. And you can go into places of terrible injustice and preach the gospel, and people can believe it, and be saved, and be heirs with, co-heirs with Christ, and have untold spiritual wealth, even while they're enslaved. It's true. It's true. However, it doesn't work very well if you're the slaveholder. See, that's the problem. If you go into a system of oppression— and you preach to people who are downtrodden and broken, and you're truly a voice from the outside, then it can work, especially if you're telling the truth to the people that are over those people. But if you are the person that they see as engaging in the injustice itself, it doesn't work. It only works if we face it, because if we're engaging in injustice, our most likely response as Christians, because we want to believe that we're good people, is that we'll find some kind of way to spiritualize it. Does that make sense? Some kind of reason why it's fine. But when you look at Nehemiah, you just don't see that in him. Right? There's a number of things that this passage says that he does. And in each case, he's facing the issue. Right? The first is he really lets himself feel it. 
he gets angry. He sees how much of an injustice this is, how terrible it is, and he doesn't minimize it in any way. He gets super mad, but then he does not just react. His anger leads him to stop and ponder very carefully. He thinks. All right, that's a big problem. There's a lot of people today that they get exercised about something, they start tweeting about it. You're probably wrong, okay? Most of the stuff, most of the problems today are pretty complicated. And so you got to take time to learn about what's going on, right? And then he also speaks the truth. He doesn't sugarcoat anything, right? He makes a moral and spiritual case, not just a political and economic case. He ties it to dignity and sanctity and to God. He doesn't just say, hey, if we do this thing, we can grow GDP. No, no, no. He says, this is morally wrong, and it's morally wrong because it's wrong in relationship to God, right? And then he doesn't over-defend the oppressed. That may be a little controversial for you, but he doesn't. He affirms the legitimacy of loaning to the poor and expecting to be paid back when you loan to them. In fact, he even says, he's like, look, me and some of my brothers, we're loaning to the poor. But what we're not doing is charging them interest so they can't ever pay it back and taking away their ability to make wealth by taking away their field so they can't ever pay it back. So he doesn't say, like, you got to forgive everything. If they need anything, you just give it to them if that's all there is to it. No, but he, he doesn't overdefend the poor, but he doesn't overdefend the rich because he is impartial, which is what Christians are always commanded to be. It says in the Torah, do not defend— right? He says, don't be partial to the poor or to a rich man in a dispute. Remember when the children of Israel were walking into—they're um, walking into the Promised Land, and they're about to completely destroy Jericho. Okay, God's going to actually knock the wall down himself. They're going to go come in. They're going to kill and burn everything and everyone. It's complete, absolute destruction, and God is going to give them that victory, okay? And so Joshua goes to get instructions, and, and the angel of the Lord appears, who is the leader of all of the armies of God. It's either the pre-incarnate Christ, or it's like a really important angel. Who knows, right? But he's like— He's standing in the place of God himself. And what does Joshua ask him? Whose team are you on? Are you for us or are you for our enemies? You know what the angel says? He's literally going to tell Joshua how God is going to help them completely destroy a city, burn everything in it, and kill everyone in it. Whose side is he on? He goes, neither. I'm not on anybody's side. I'm here as the, as the leader of the armies of the Lord. I don't take sides. In this situation, here's what's going to happen. Here's what you're going to do. So even in an incredibly one-sided victory where God is judging and destroying one people and fulfilling a promise completely in total victory to another, even then, he isn't taking sides. Think about how that would cause us to think about our enemies. He's himself an example for the perpetrators. Like, he's a wealthy guy. But he hasn't been taking interest, and he hasn't been doing these things, and so nobody can accuse him of doing it, right? And then he charges the spiritual leaders, because where were the Levites in all this? Doing nothing. But think about this. Where were the Jewish commandments that said this was wrong, and who was in charge of them? The answer is the Levites. The Levites were the ones who were supposed to be reading the Bible. Every single thing that these oppressors were doing in chapter 5, every single thing is outlawed in the Bible, in the Bible that they had, explicitly explicitly outlawed. And the Levites are like, well, let's read one of the Psalms. Like they were just—and listen, listen to me. Sometimes justice doesn't—even among the Christians, doesn't come through the clergy. Don't think that people like me are less corruptible than people like you. 
The clergy are incredibly corruptible, especially right now in America, because churches are shrinking, and they're all scared for their jobs, and they're wondering, like, if people are going to come to their churches, and they certainly don't want to offend people because they're only, like, making it by 2%, and they don't really want to retrain it, whatever age they are, and, like— and then, like, whenever you talk to a politician or, like, a businessman, you want them to like you. And, of course, the businessmen are given more than the average person at your church. Like, the last thing you want to do is, like, make waves, man. And, like, that is so corrupting. And you need to realize that, like, God is going to bring about justice and, like, realizations and helpful things in these areas. And it's often not going to come through the Levites. We have a way of putting our head in the sand, a way of not seeing what's right in front of us, a way of reading one part of the Bible and not the other. And you can't count on us all the time. Though sometimes we come around and are helpful in the end, right? And then lastly, he calls them to the fear of the Lord. Okay, so let's end with just a couple, couple lessons here. Here's a couple for spiritual leadership in relationship to this kind of stuff. The first is, don't be a know-it-all. Think hard and carefully after you start to feel. It's especially true for the young. Okay, listen. Um, I'm 42. I don't know, I maybe read 150,000 pages of public policy and social science and Christian theology and something in my lifetime. I don't know the answer to most of our problems. And I've probably read more than you about most of them. They're, they're, they are really hard to figure out. Because you figure out this problem, you figure out what's causing it, and then there's like six more problems, and then those problems are related to these problems, and all those are laid on these things. And like, it's very easy to start tweeting out things you think are solutions. It's sometimes when you're young, it's okay to just say, this thing doesn't seem right. Can't we do better? Just give the heat and don't think you have all the light. Just be like, man, like, I don't like the way we're, we're treating our environment. Or like, man, it feels like racially there's still a bunch of stuff we could fix it. We're just not fixing. Or like, do you see totalitarianism rising in our world? Like, are we gonna, what are we going to do? We got to do something? You don't have to have the answer. Sometimes you just pass on the heat. And sometimes that's what the grown-ups need. Because like, listen, we're not the kind of sellouts you think we are for the most part. We tried a lot of stuff. And these problems are enduring, difficult problems, and they're just hard to solve. And some of them have gotten better, and you're just thankless about it. Some of them have gotten worse. Some of them are harder to solve. And so, but sometimes we could do better. And we really have gotten lazy because it's hard work to reform anything. And like, sometimes we need young people to be like, hey, man, can't we do better? And then people like me start going like, all right, yep, if we put that down, we need to pick that thing back up again. Let's try to figure it out. And then they'll invite you in, instead of trying to figure out a way to keep you far enough away that you're not going to wreck their lives, right? So just be careful. Be careful, especially when you're young, especially if you think you know something, okay? And then second is, you got to already have a track record of spiritual and sacrificial integrity, okay? Look, listen, if you want to change things socially, put the Twitter and Instagram down and step away from it and start volunteering 15 hours a week in the place where you think things are bad and need to change, and work directly with some of the people who you think are receiving these kinds of injustices. So you can get burned five, six, seven times. Learn how naive maybe you are. And also have some successes and see some great things happen. And like work with some people who actually work in that field. And like, and then like give some of your money, like substantial portions of your money. And like do things so that like when it's time for you to say something because you've taken the time to think and act and be around stuff so that you think maybe you have something worthwhile to say and you realize all the things you were saying that weren't worthwhile and you're not saying those anymore. When you get to that point, somebody's like, well, what do you, what do you know about this? And you go, well, because for the last seven years I've been doing this. And then they go, oh, really? I had that happen to me with leaders all the time because like, look at me. I'm like the palest person ever, right? And so when I'm like, hey, I want to be involved in— Things getting better in Madison. 
I want to be involved in all four of those things, getting better. And people are like, well, are you going to be some kind of hero? And I'm like, no. And they're like, not really. I just want to help. And they're like, well, what have you done? And I'll be like, well, over the last 10 years, here's what we've done. And, and then I'm like, and then, and then they're like, well, what have you read? And I'm like, well, I've read. And they're like, oh, shoot. Uh, okay, well, let's talk. And it, but like, I've spent 10 years. I've spent more like 28 years trying to be the kind of person that like can then get in some of these places and there'll be some trust and you can't accomplish anything without trust, right? And then don't expect other spiritual leaders to do this or encourage you. I already talked about that. I'm not going to go more into that right now. Okay, four economic principles for Christians. Let me see if I have the other one. Okay, four economic principles. One is one of the first things that Nehemiah does is he calls people back to the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Like, and in this case, what it means is something like this. What do you think God really thinks about your financial arrangements with other humans? Does he think they're just? Does he think they're just? Or does he think they're not just? Right? Like, he says, he, the, the, the big, like, mic-dropping moment for Nehemiah is, shouldn't you guys have lived in the fear of the Lord, if you would have feared the Lord, like, not just like, I like church and we should love each other, blah, 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 vague theology. But if you like literally understood the moral seriousness of God and you had some real fear of the Lord, you would have never done this. Never done it. But then I know other people who fear the Lord and don't think clearly. I work with this one guy who he just, he has such a hard time. He has so much of the fear of the Lord and he doesn't understand economics well enough. And like, he like sells his shirt off his back. And has worked for like 35 years and has never been able to save a dime. And so he has like a false sense of what should be done. And he, and he allows other people to take terrible advantage of him because they don't have any fear of the Lord. And he understands it somewhat wrongly. So fearing the Lord and understanding what that means in economic arrangements is something that we got to sort out. Okay, secondly is, are we brothers? Are we brothers? Like what, if somebody's your brother, like think about it. If you have a brother or a sister, how would you allow them to live before you did something about it? How poor would you let them be? How poor would you let their kids be? How bad would you let their school be if they were your brother? Right? One of the reasons why we've been involved in starting choice schools is because a lot of Christians have said, who are our brothers and sisters, whether they go to this church or not, they are divinely created brothers and sisters. They're like, our schools stink. We don't feel like our teachers pay attention to our kids. Now, I don't know if the teachers pay attention to their kids or not. I don't know. I don't know that. All I know is that's what they tell me. And they say, you've got, you know, your nice little high-point Christian school with all your little kids, and like, you know, 40% of your families make a quarter million dollars or more. That's really great for you guys, but like our school— like, So we've, we've spent a lot of time and energy and money and like interest in like creating choice schooling so that every family that wants to get in on that for Christian high-quality education, no matter what racial background you come from, so that we can instruct kids really well. Like, I did not need another thing to do, okay? I didn't, but listen— I wouldn't let my kids go to school where their faith was being undermined every single day and where they weren't really being paid attention to as learners. If I felt that way, even if it wasn't true, if I felt that way, I would do something. And I would want somebody to do something for me. And look, listen, I'll tell you what, it complicates your life. You start thinking like that. And on another level, not with the same intensity, but on another level, working outwards, every human image bearer, whether they're a believer or not, has a certain sort of kind of brotherhood to us. 
Every poor person everywhere in the world. The third is, are, are you or are they destitute? Right? One, one of the questions being asked here is, you can't really loan to people who have nothing. Like, there's a certain level under which there isn't self-sustaining productivity. And when people are below that, your main moral obligation to them is to help them get above that line. Right? To get, like, rule of law and decent markets and reasonable education and some economic activity so that they can get to that point where they can, like, get a job and they can pay for stuff and they can do things. And a lot of great work is being done all over the world by people to help that happen. But, like, if you're dealing with somebody and you want them to produce something and they have nothing, that's a problem. Like, when people get out of prison, that—that's a, that's a problem. And you send those guys to halfway houses, other guys who got out of prison, don't have any money, like— it's not cool, right? But do you know why we do that? Because we don't want them in our houses. We don't want somebody to get out of prison and come live with us. So we have these little places we send them where they can be together with other criminal guys. And like, surely all of them are trying to get their lives straight. Like, this is—it's not helpful, right? And—but yet they've got to get to this place where they can be productive. And getting people up on that jump is not a time to be like— well, you gotta pay this debt. You gotta do this thing. Blah, blah, blah. Listen, maybe the famine in their life is self-created. Okay, listen, for a large portion of the poor, especially in the United States, if people are destitute, there's at least some significant portion that they have contributed to. Okay, unemployment is like at 3%. Like, anybody who's emotionally functional can get a job. Like, that's just a fact. I'm sorry, it's a fact. So anybody who, like, just li literally can't do anything, they, they're dysfunctional, Okay. They're still a divine image bearer. We still got to do something loving with and for and to them that respects their dignity and tries to help them. Got to do something. And we got to figure out what that is. And that's going to be hard. Okay, and then the last one is this. Is it usury? Okay, now that's not a word that we use very much because we don't like it. But usury is a idea used all through Scripture. In fact, if you read Scripture carefully— the literal reading of, scri of scriptures related to interest is that you can't charge any. Okay, that's also true in Islam, if you don't know that. Interest is forbidden, in most cases, sort of. In fact, that's one of the reasons why people hated Jews so much in Europe, is because um, Christians weren't allowed to charge interest, but Jews were allowed to charge interest, and so Jews ended up being bankers, and they charged interest, and people hated them for it, but that's also how they built most of the economic development of Europe, was through loaning and economic things for enterprises. It's a really sad piece of history. But ultimately what usury is, is the charging of excessive interest to people who can't pay it. So if somebody wants to do like an economic venture, and you p invest money in it, and they're going to make wealth, what you're doing is you're offering value to them, and they're deciding whether or not the interest you're charging them is worth what the wealth they're going to create. It's not the same thing as when your brother lost his job, and he's going to lose his house, and he needs 600 bucks. Those are totally different in the Bible. And that's why the Bible argues, at least in the Old Testament, that you should always receive a loan from the closest person to you, familiarly speaking. Right? You're, if, if you don't have any money, your brother is supposed to loan you money. Because your brother knows if you're, if, like, you're the kind of person who will work or if it's just a waste of money. But your brother also cares about you. Your brother's going to put together the right kind of interest. Your brother's going to decide how long it takes to pay it back. Because that person's supposed to care about you. And when you need that kind of a loan, a redeeming loan, you need somebody who is a brother. Now, here, now listen. 
Here's the thing. Let's end with this. We're pretty stinky brothers, you and me. Even probably some of our family. All right, when was the last time you called your mom? Right? And in the story of the prodigal son, the older brother's terrible brother. Just soon let his brother die. Die in some far country. Who cares? He spent everything. He was rich. Now he's poor. Who cares if he dies of some like bovine carried disease? Who cares? Right? I think it's one of the reasons why when we're told that we're heirs of Christ, or that we're not just heirs of Christ, co-heirs with Christ, that there's this picture of him being our older brother, sharing the inheritance with us, scumbags as we are. Totally spiritually poor. You were born with the spiritual inheritance of the image of God. You were born with everything. You were born wealthier than any creature that has ever existed could possibly imagine just in your being. And you squandered it as with prostitutes and pigs. You've done nothing with it relative to what you could have been. You shouldn't be an heir. You've wasted everything. And Jesus, the greater older brother, the only true brother humanity has ever seen, comes out of the riches of heaven, becomes the poorest that there is, receives enslaving injustice to reshare his inheritance with you. First, enjoy that and receive it by faith. Let's enjoy it. That's what he did for you. That's what it's like. And then two, how should we then live if that's true? Let's pray together. Father, we, um, we're good at talking spiritual language and we are, some of these issues related to justice are very difficult for, for us. Um, those of us who are suffering under injustice often have very strong ideas about how everybody else should behave. So those of us who are not in the throes of injustice and oppression often have very strong ideas about how the oppressed should behave. And it is very easy for us to talk past each other and not understand each other and to allow the body of Christ and the body of humanity to be torn apart into pieces and to have no solidarity and no brotherhood and no justice and so squander the movement of your spirit that brings restoration. And so, God, we pray that you, by your spirit, would lead us to repentance and faith appropriately to these things and to obedience and sacrifice such that you can accomplish what you want to accomplish and for it to change us in the, with the kind of depth that creates the riches of godliness that we'll enjoy forever. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.